Heavenly Father, as we reflect upon the good fight of the faith that you've called us into, and we realize that Christ has already secured that victory for us on the cross, we want to live as He lived perfectly, not fleeing the fight or turning away, but embracing Your very wrath so that sinners like us, instead of receiving Your wrath, could be set free by grace through faith. And so I pray, Lord, that You would bless us as a people this morning as we contemplate this call to mission, our call to mission as a church, and our call to mission individually here in San Jose and in the state of California where we live amongst a very lost people group, where even this morning as we sit here in this sanctuary, we are surrounded by tens of thousands of people who have never heard the gospel, not one time. But if they do not hear, how can they believe? And if they do not believe, how can they be saved? We want to be faithful warriors here, bringing the gospel to our neighbors and our family and our friends and to this locality, this city, um, so that many can be saved and you might be glorified in this place. And so I pray, Father, that as we look at this passage, that you'd be gracious with us, that you would give us a right stirring in our hearts to open our mouths and to testify to the great work of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, and that you would cause us to see the mission field and the mission work that is before us. It is vast and it is glorious. And how amazing that you would call us here at this time in human history to do your son's work. Um, I pray we would receive that with great joy and work hard for you. I pray above all else, Father, that during this time you'd be glorified, that we would enjoy the sweet communion that we have in Christ and worship you in spirit and truth. In his name, amen. Amen. Okay. So Thanksgiving weekend, this, there's a tendency for people to be away and back. Do not let that discourage you. Where two or more are gathered, Christ is present. So Christ is present. What more do you need? What more do you need if the Spirit is with us? Um, the title of the sermon is The Iconium Way. What, what is, well, Iconium is the city. You'll get the title of the sermon at the end if I do my job decently. Um, it's going to focus on the mission work of Paul and Barnabas in that city and how that might be a really good model for us today, especially here in San Jose and in the state of California. We have seen over the past two years a, a, an exodus, a mass exodus out of the state. In fact, they're calling it the California Exodus. In fact, in 2020, the net population in California decreased by 200,000 people. Now, you think, well, that's not that big of a deal. We have 40 million people in the state. That's the first time since statehood in 1850 that we've seen a net decrease, so much so that we lost a, a seat in the House of Representatives. That's the type of decline. Um, from 2010 to 2020, in the last decade, California has had 6.1 million people leave the state of California to live in another state. In fact, the LA Times came out just as recent as last August and said this is an extraordinary figure. 50% of Californians, that's 20 million people, are considering leaving the state, most of whom are conservative or Christian. Most of whom. Now, if you've lived here for any length of time, 
This should not be a surprise to you. We, when a small home in a rundown neighborhood cost $1 million plus, or when you go to the gas station and it costs you $80 to fill up your Honda Accord, highways, schools, public spaces, dilapidated, in need of desperate work, when you have what I would say lovingly liberal, incompetent, immoral politicians literally trying to drive the state into ruin, high taxes, LGBTQ, critical race theory, social justice, equity training being forced in our schools and in our workplaces where we pay billions of dollars to support homelessness and unemployment and we restrict the right to bear arms. Um, it's understandable why conservatives want to leave the state. Forced mask mandates, forced vaccinations, politically correct pronouns, anti-business, anti-family, and California hosts, by the way, 25% of all abortion clinics in the entire nation, and they want to build more. So if you are... If you're a conservative, it's easy to understand how you can look across our border to a red state and be drawn to that place. Conservative politics, better tax laws, lower cost of living. We understand that. I understand that. The Christian, though, is not a conservative or Republican or Libertarian first. The Christian is a disciple of Jesus Christ first. The Christian is called to be a gospel witness, how far? To the end of the nations, including California, in places like this, and much, much worse. That's our calling. So this morning, as we continue to make our way through the book of Acts, we will have an opportunity to consider missions in this place, your mission in this place, and our mission as a church. Where, when, and how long a Christian ought to stay in a particular place, doing the work of the Lord, and when it might be wise to leave a particular place. So we're going to look at Paul and Barnabas. They're in Iconium, and they're doing a work there, and God's doing a work there. And so my hope is real simple. If you are an evangelical believer, and that means you're going to, an evangelical believer believes in the proclamation of the gospel. If you're an evangelical, that you will think very differently about this mission field where God has sovereignly ordained you to be as of this morning, or you wouldn't be here, and then think of it in the context of the great fight for souls. And I'd like to do that. I'd like us to learn three things this morning. One, to, as Christians, to expect the fight. Number two, to remain in the fight. And number three, flee if necessary, but then keep on fighting. All right? So as Christians, we expect the fight, we remain in the fight, and we flee if necessary, but we keep on fighting. The theme of the sermon is this. Know your purpose, and you'll know your mission. If you know why you're here, if you know why God has left you here, you understand your purpose, you'll understand your mission, and you'll be able to think through these things very, very clearly. So point number one, I feel free to say yes, amen, and encourage me when the numbers are small like this. Number one, expect a fight. Look at verse one. Now at Iconium, they, Paul and Barnabas, entered into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Verse two, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas, first missionary journey, they leave Antioch, they head to Cyprus. From Cyprus, they go north to Antioch, Pisidia, and they get run out of there. Remember, they share the gospel, and many come to a saving grace, and then the opposition rises up, and they're forced to flee. We're told in verse 51 of, of Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went to Iconium. 
Now, Iconium is about 90 miles southeast of Antioch, Pisidian, also a Hellenistic city. So Hellenized was Iconium that just a few years before Barnabas and Paul arrived on scene, Emperor Claudius, this is great, he changed the name of Iconium to Claudiconium. Claudiconium. Now, when I read that, I laughed. I thought, well, back then it was evidently an honor for cities to have the emperor name their metropolis after him. But I thought, how have we applied that today? If we applied that today, San Jose would be, for some time, it would have been Trump Jose. Today it would be Biden Jose. I don't think people would like that too much. Maybe they would. I don't know. Upon their arrival in Iconium, though, Paul and Barnabas do what's normal. They go to the synagogue. They preach the son of David, who is Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we're told at the end of uh, verse 1 that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. They heard the gospel. It says they preached in such a way. They weren't preaching in a fantastic new way or a fancy way. They were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, a crucified, risen, reigning Savior. And many believed. Jews by birth, uh, Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, and then also God-fearers who were there worshiping. And so we see God doing a very similar work in Iconium that he had done in Antioch. Many had come to a saving grace, and we also see opposition arising. Look at verse 2 again. But the unbelieving Jews, those were those who heard the gospel and fully rejected Jesus as the Messiah. The unbelieving Jews, they stirred up the Gentiles and they poisoned their minds against the brothers. So that word stirred up, it means to excite to action, not good action, bad action. And the word poison, it means to embitter. Now, if you were an older sibling, uh, I had two younger brothers. I know that I was very good at doing this embittering. You know, I would poke and prod and tease my little brothers until they would get so angry, they would lash out. Mom and dad would come in the room and say, what's going on? So I don't know what happened. I don't know why they're so upset. I don't know why they struck me. Well, this is what's happening here. The Jews who have no respect for the Gentiles, right? These are, these are cursed, unclean people. Use them to become their enemies against the gospel and against Paul and Barnabas. And they, they incite them to such a degree that, that Iconium becomes a polarized city. You have Jews and Gentiles believing Christ and following, and you have those who are now actively working against. And this, my beloved, if you don't know this already, you probably do. This is what the gospel does. When the gospel comes in and people are saved and begin to follow Jesus Christ, those who do not will rebel against them. And there will be tension. There will be division. There will be a fight. And there has been ever since Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, came into the darkness. Right? What does a light have to do with the darkness? What does righteousness have to do with unrighteousness? Paul says, absolutely nothing. But when they come together, there's going to be a battle. And we should expect that. In fact, it was Jesus himself who said, In Luke chapter 12, verses you know, but listen again anew. Jesus said, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? He says, no, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, from this point on, from the ministry of Christ, the gospel going out, Jesus said, from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother. In other words, when the gospel came in, when the light comes in and the darkness remains, there will be a fight. And and many of you, in some capacity, have already experienced this. If you know Christ as Lord and you are pursuing him faithfully, then you have family members or friends or coworkers or maybe a boss 
or multiple bosses who have come against this testimony of yours and they've, they've either ridiculed you or they've put pressure on you not to follow Jesus faithfully. So important was this expectation that Christ was trying to shape for the disciples. In his last week of ministry, Jesus warned his disciples of the fight they were entering. He told them already to count the cost. But then this, he says this in John 15, listen. And this is applied to all Christians throughout the history of the church. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, Christ said, the world what? The world hates you. You're not of the world. Christ chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And then he said, remember the word that I said to you. So he said, recall this. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So the question I had as I was preparing this, thinking, why are we always so surprised as Christians when we see conflict and difficulties and persecution from the world? I don't understand it. Christ said it over and over again. We see it in the New Testament. So the believer ought not be surprised. We ought to expect a fight. We ought to expect hardship and a battle as long as we live in this fallen world. Christ made it clear that we are in a fight, a fight for the souls of many. And so if you say, well, you know what? I don't experience that. I love Jesus. I follow Jesus. I pray before I eat. I read my Bible occasionally, and I have no problem with the world. Well, here's the problem. The world has not changed. The world is still fallen, and the world still hates Jesus. So if you have no problem in your faith, then there's a problem with your faith because we are still in the fight. When Athanasius of Alexandria stood up in the 4th century against Arius, who was saying that Jesus was not fully God, not truly God, Athanasius was exiled no less than five times in a period of 30 years, out in, out in, because he stood for the deity of Jesus Christ, arguing that Jesus was begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, and he suffered as a result. A thousand years later, most of you have heard the name John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe did not, did not believe that the Pope had sole authority over spiritual matters. He said the Bible does, and he came out against the Catholic Church, and he actually wrote the translation from the Latin Vulgate into the English so English-speaking people could read the Bible and hear God's word without going through the, the Pope or the Vatican. That was in 1370. He was condemned at the, at the Council of Constance after his death, but so angry was the church with his teaching, they exhumed his body, they burned it, and then they scattered the ashes. Well, it, uh, it had its right effect. Forty years later, John Huss picked up where Wycliffe left off and he said, no, the scriptures are the supreme authority and he came against the Pope, came against the indulgences. He even argued against purgatory. John Huston, this is, this is back in 1415. Um, he was called by the church to the Council of Constance to defend his position and he was promised by the church that he would be treated fairly. Well, so he shows up and they imprison him, and they try him, and then they burn him at the stake as a heretic in 1415. Why? He was a Christian. He was following Jesus. But John Huss and, um, and Whitcliffe and all the other saints throughout the history, they expected a fight because they were proclaiming Christ and the light in a dark world. The point is simple. By following Jesus Christ and proclaiming 
Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is to enter into the longest, bloodiest war known to mankind. If you do that, if you follow Jesus, you're engaging in this cosmic battle between good and evil, between eternal life and eternal death, between God and all the forces of evil. And if you proclaim Christ, you're entering into that fight, a real fight with real people and real lives and real souls that stand in the balance. So the cost of this battle, listen, the cost of this battle is not higher property taxes or more land or better politicians. The cost of this battle that we've entered into as Christians is eternal life and eternal death. That's the fight we're in. And it'll be eternal life or eternal death depending upon whose side you're fighting on. And for many of us, we know those who are fighting on the wrong side and therefore we know their end. With stakes this high, we ought to expect the fight to be fierce. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about souls. Certainly a greater fight than things like property values or the price of gasoline. We should expect the fight. And if we expect the battle to be fierce, then we should expect hardship and persecution as we fight. It's not going to be easy. We should expect it to be hard from the world. We should expect it to be hard from our family members who do not know Jesus. We should expect it to be hard from our friends, people we've known our whole life. We should even expect it, my beloved, to be hard from the church. When the church does not want to really follow Christ, and then we get backlash from those who profess Christ as Lord and Savior. So having a right expectation means that you can enter into the fight well-trained, right, knowing you're going into a battle, so you're going to sharpen your sword, you're going you're to guard your faith. Well-trained and not willing to flee when things get difficult. Staying the course. If you are a follower of Jesus, and you may not like this, and you said, I didn't come here this morning to hear this, your life's not supposed to be easy. You know that? If you are a follower of Jesus, your life is not supposed to be easy. The Apostle Paul, when writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he's recalling this incident in Iconium. And he has this teaching for all Christians. Listen to what he said. He's talking to Timothy. He says, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium, which you know, and at Lystra, which we'll look at next week, which persecutions, he said, I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And you say, praise God. And then he said this in verse 12, 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise from the word of God. Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So that's the right expectation. So if you're being persecuted for your faith, you should praise God. So well, that mean, must mean something. It must mean that I'm actually following him. Yes? All right, point number one. Expect a fight because we're in a fight. Expect a fight. And if you want to live a godly life in Christ, then fight well. Point number two. How long do we remain in the fight? How long? If we have a right expectation, then we want to think like Paul and Barnabas. Wherever we are, we want to think like they were thinking. We want to know that we're engaged in a cosmic battle between good and evil, and therefore when things get hard, like Paul and Barnabas, we'll be more apt to stay than to flee for reasons of comfort. Look at verse 2 again. 
the latter part of verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Verse 3, so they, Paul and Barnabas, remained for a long time in Iconium, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Verse 4, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And so Iconium was truly a divided city. Those who were hearing the gospel, repenting and believing, and those who are saying, we hate this teaching, and we're going to come against the message, and we're going to come against the messengers. In other words, it was a, it was a cancel culture long before our perception of cancel culture, right? I mean, Iconium was, it was Kenosha, and it was Minneapolis or Atlanta, and the cancel culture in Iconium was taking the same route, said, we're going we're gonna to tell you to stop talking. If you don't stop talking, we're going to get, we're going to, Use violence to make sure that your agenda does not go out. So you say, well, that's, that's amazing. Well, there's nothing new, right? There's nothing new. There's cancel culture then, the cancel culture now doing the exact same thing. So the question is, what do Paul and Barnabas do in the midst of their cancel culture? What do they do? They pack their bags, say, farewell, Iconium, we're going back to Antioch? No, they don't do that. Do they, do they go silent? Do they go underground? Say, we're going to get really quiet. We're going to love people. We're going to testify to the gospel by loving people. We're not going to talk about Jesus. We're not going to proclaim the gospel. They don't do either of those. They do two things in the midst of persecution and hostility that I think makes for a wonderful model for us. Number one, they remained for a long time. And number two, they continue speaking boldly for the Lord. So instead of fleeing, now that would have been the fleshly response, right? Persecution's coming. Let's get out of here. I imagine, too, there were some in the church in Iconium, younger believers who said to Paul and Bar, you got to go. Oh, you got to go now. This could get really bad. But they don't listen to their flesh, and they don't listen to bad counsel. It says that they're being persecuted, and so what do they do? They remain a long time. You know, that's so weird. I mean, you read that verse, and you think they were being persecuted, therefore they fled. But instead, they remain, and they remain a long time. And in their remaining, what do they do? They continue to speak boldly, the message that was getting them in so much trouble. So they don't just remain a long time. They remain and they continue to speak boldly. They continue to proclaim a crucified, risen, reigning Savior. And so here's the missionary strategy of Paul and Barnabas in Iconium, which I think might be a good one for us to adopt today here in San Jose. Remain and proclaim. Remain where you are, because that's where God has you, and proclaim a crucified, risen reigning Savior. It was very good for Paul and Barnabas instead of fleeing. In fact, look at the latter part of verse 3. What does God do? He blesses their obedience. Latter part of verse 3. The Lord bearing witness to the word of his grace, that's the gospel, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So because Paul and Barnabas didn't skedaddle after things got difficult, because they remained in Iconium and continued to proclaim the gospel, God blessed them with signs and wonders to do what? To authenticate the message. In the authenticating of the message, as a witness to it, many were saved. Their obedience to God brought blessings in the salvation of many. And none of those people would have been saved had they not heard the gospel. None of those people would have come to know the Lord had Paul and Barnabas not stopped there to do the work that was a very difficult work to do. So the question I had, thinking, well, what, what is it that Paul and Barnabas understood about their purpose that we don't understand well today as Western Christians? 
What is it that Paul understood that I would argue many California Christians and maybe many ex-California Christians do not understand well today? Fundamentally, I think it's this, that Paul and Barnabas understood that their purpose in life was to bring honor and glory to God, and that purpose defined their mission. They understood that. They understood their purpose, and therefore, they got their mission too. In other words, the, the, the Christian's purpose in life, and hopefully this is not shocking to you, is not the pursuit of comfort and ease. It's not the pursuit of financial gain. The bigger house, a little bit of land, lower cost of living. The, the, the purpose of the Christian is not to find the most conservative community with the most conservative politician with the lowest gas prices and therefore live there happily ever after. You'll not find that anywhere in Scripture. Our chief end and aim is not to glorify ourselves and enjoy the blessings of a conservative culture, which I hear so much from Christian tongues today. Our chief end and aim is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To enjoy Him forever. In other words, your purpose in this life is living the life that brings God, shocking now, ready, the most glory, the most honor, Your purpose in this life is living the life that brings God the most glory, not you the most comfort or the most blessings until you die. I know that's not news to you, but it is oftentimes the way we live, right? Over the past few years, we have seen in our little church several members leave this place and move out of state. We've seen several. And oftentimes the the justification is my Christian beliefs and the evilness of of the state of California, and the darkness of the Bay Area. But I do believe if we are willing to be transparent and open up our words and pursue God in His Spirit, I think that we would uncover something about the tens of thousands that are leaving this state and continue to leave this state. I think that we would uncover that it has very little to do with religious freedom and the persecution of us as Christians, and much more to do with their desire for the temporal things of this world. Now, I I couldn't have said this 20 years ago when I first started preaching, but I can now. I've lived in this state for 50 years. So I got five decades under my belt in the state of California. And without question, some things have changed. They have. But the truth of the matter is this. As a Christian in the state of California living in San Jose, I can still own multiple firearms. I can still homeschool my children. I can still choose where I work, where I live, who I marry, how I spend my free time. I can still have Bible studies in my home. I can still share the gospel on the streets. I can still gather with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, on a Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day, on this piece of property, private property, and I can still proclaim the gospel which the world hates. (laughs) 55. Listen, if this is true, then we still have great religious freedom here. Great religious freedom. All these things we can do because Christ has still blessed us with the opportunity to be gospel witnesses here in San Jose and in the state of California. I and you enjoy great religious freedom certainly in the context of the history of the church and in many places throughout the world today. Extraordinary Christian freedom. 
In fact, the persecution that we've seen in the book of Acts up to chapter 14, and if you know anything about church history, the persecution that our brothers and sisters, the saints victorious, have seen throughout the centuries, and places today where real persecution is taking place, this very morning, North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, these are dangerous places to be a Christian. Any Christian who tries to justify the departure of the state of California based upon religious persecution, I would have to say it's a laughable argument, if not sinful, in light of what we know scripturally and historically. If Paul and Barnabas were to use the California standard of a go-no-go decision on missions, they never would have left Antioch, ever, if they used the same thinking that many California Christians are using today. I believe most California Christians are leaving this mission field, not for religious reasons, but I believe for utopian reasons, for temporal utopian reasons. I, I, I want you to ask yourself, as I asked me, where are these Christians from California going? If they're on mission here and they're going to go on mission somewhere else, where are they going? Are they going to Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, New York City, Los Angeles? I mean, these are the places we want to go. Seattle, Portland? No, they're going to Texas, Tennessee, Idaho, Arizona. You say, well, that's strange. Those are all red states, red states with conservative politics and places where the gospel has been faithfully preached in many cases for years places where it's easier to live. The 20th century theologian who is now with the Lord, James Boyce, he argued throughout his entire life before he died, he said that Christians need to stop fleeing our cities for politics and for comfort. He said this, instead, Christians are to fulfill the Lord's command to do what? Shocking, earth-shattering, love our neighbors as ourselves. Stay in the cities and do what? Remain and proclaim. Remain in the city, remain amongst the people, and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to these massive lost population centers. My beloved, I'm not saying that the gospel is not needed in a small town of 500 people where the number of cows outnumber it by a hundredfold. They do. But God is not in the business of saving cows. They don't have a, tr a problem with sin. We do. And therefore, Christians need to be amongst people like people in San Jose. And I, so I'm not saying that God does not move his people. He does. He moves his people as he sees fit all the time. But a Christian would have to have, I believe, a very, very, very compelling reason to leave such a rich mission field like California where the true gospel, listen, the true gospel is virtually unknown You've heard this from the pulpit multiple times. San Jose and the Bay Area is the most unchurched, de-churched people group in the nation. What does that mean? They don't know the gospel. Many have never heard the gospel. Jesus Christ to most is a curse word. Well, that, that should break our hearts. And if we're serious about the salvation of souls, that should compel us to remain and proclaim boldly. It is disturbing, my beloved, that even within Reformed Christian circles. There are several pastors, some well-known pastors like Doug Wilson up in Idaho who are encouraging Christians to leave California. In fact, just a, a few months ago, he said this. Speaking of Christians in California, people know how to get out of the rain. The refugee columns know which way to go. The implication being if you're a Christian staying in California, you're a fool. 
you're a fool. Now, I may be wrong, but I thought Christians are supposed to stay in the rain so we can help people find shelter in Christ. I thought we're supposed to stay amongst the spiritual refugees so we can help them become citizens of the kingdom of God. I thought that's why we're here, not to leave them. Pastor Joel Webin, a relatively well-known pastor down in San Diego, just this past year he left his very thriving, healthy church in San Diego to go to Texas. And this was his thinking, listen. He said, quote, I believe the best way for Christians to win California for Christ, one of the best things Christians can do for California is to stop propping it up. Instead, he said, we should exit California and send our children back in once it has imploded. We should get out of California, let it implode, let it destroy itself, and once it does, then we'll send our children back in. To this comment, Doug Wilson said, now you're thinking like a good general. Now you're thinking like a good general. My beloved, a good general, or a foot soldier for that matter, in the army of God would never forsake 40 million souls of this generation and say that they're going to reach the next. 40 million souls. Do you know the influence the state of California has in the world? If California were a, were a country, just the state of California, there are 195 countries in the world. It'd be the 34th largest country in the world. If California were a country, it would have the fifth largest economy in the world. In fact, it's so big and so powerful that it supersedes Australia and Canada. Imagine if we said, here's our mission strategy for Australia. We're going to let this generation implode, and then we'll send people in 20, 30 years from now. Or Canada. These are crazy statements. They are unbiblical, and I believe they're devious. Satan loves it when Christians leave this state. He loves it because he knows California is the most populous state in the nation. He knows, California knows, and you've heard this, as California goes, so what? So goes the nation. And there's so much truth in that. When you look at the population centers, when you look at cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco and San Diego and San Jose and Hollywood shaping public policy, to, to leave it would be catastrophic, I believe. I mean, imagine if we adopted this during World War II. Adolf Hitler completes the capturing of France June 1940. And imagine if we said to the French resistance, we're just going to wait out here until everything is completely destroyed in France and then we'll come in and we'll work it out. I, I don't think that would have been encouraging to the French resistance fighters during that time. Or imagine had we, after D-Day, imagine if we had pushed all the way up to Germany and we had come in on the northwest from the Rhine River, but we're not going to cross the Rhine, we're not going to come in through Poland, and we're not going to come up from the south through Italy. Imagine we said, we're just going to wait and then let all the Germans and all the Jews and everybody inside just die off. How effective would that be? Well, that would have been absolute madness. I think it is the same, but infinitely worse because we're talking about souls, not just bodies. Eternal souls. California hosts 40 million people that either are saved and need shepherds or need to be saved. 40 million souls, both of which categories require more gospel witnesses and healthy churches. I, I have a better strategy. Now, I'm going to speak as a pastor from California. Here should our strategy be in 2022. 
let's plant 10,000 more healthy, Christ-centered, expository preaching churches in the state of California. And let's call tens of thousands of Christians to lead the comfort of their red states and to come into this blue state and into these blue cities and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That sounds more like Acts 14. That sounds more like the Bible and not some utopian perspective of life. Paul and Barnabas, and I would say every missionary who ever persevered in the midst of evil cultures and evil governments for centuries, understood that merely because the darkness increased doesn't mean you leave. It's supposed to get more difficult. In fact, what we've seen throughout the history of the churches, the more the gospel grows, the more people that are saved, and the more churches that are planted, the, the fiercer the battle gets. Again, right expectations. It's not pleasing to the Lord when we just leave because things are hard. Paul and Barnabas remained for a long time and they spoke boldly the Lord Jesus Christ and many were saved. So rather than allowing the American dream, whatever that is today, conservative politics or some post-millennial theology to shape major decisions, where do I live? Where do I raise my family? Where do I do ministry? I would argue we should keep these three things in mind. They're very brief. Listen, number one, I say this in love, you have no rights as a Christian. You know that. You have no rights as an American Christian. You say, well, what do I mean? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Paul said, you are not your own. You are what? You were bought with a price. What was that price? Well, you heard Bill read it. That was the blood of Jesus. You have no rights. Romans chapter 6, verse 18. Paul says, you have become a slave to righteousness. You have the right to freely live a righteous life to the glory of God. But we don't have, I I hear so much about, well, I have freedom in Christ. Well, of course you have freedom in Christ. You have freedom to follow Christ. That's your freedom. Freedom to listen to his calling and his plan and his gifting for your life and the place he's called you to live and minister and serve if you truly are a slave to righteousness. So one, you have no rights. Number two, this is not your home. Hebrews 11:13 I pray you remember this we are strangers and exiles on earth it's just not our home you're always going to be at odds with the world try to find a better place wait a little bit and you're going to have odds there too This is not our home. Christ did not call us and command us to make a little heaven on earth. He said the exact opposite to the disciples. Did he not say if you leave your house your brothers, your sister, your mother, your father and children and lands for my sake and for the gospel. He said, you're called to that. And if you do, what? He said in verse 30 of Mark 10, you will receive a hundredfold in this life and in the next. The exact opposite of creating heaven on earth. Guess what? Christ will do that when he comes again in glory, right? That's his job, not ours. We're supposed to fight the fight. So you have no rights. This is not your home. And I'll give you one more. You're a missionary where God has placed you. If you're here right now and you are at this moment, this is your mission field. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We let off the entire sermon series with this. Christ said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We are at the ends of the earth. This is our mission field. This is where God has placed us. God's sovereign decree has placed you here in Silicon Valley. God's sovereign decree has saved you in this place to be a brilliant light and a testimony in the most unchurched, de-churched place in the country. I would say missionally, there's no better place for you to be. And you're here, not by chance, but by decree. So we need, my beloved, 
We don't need Christians leaving this state. We need Christians coming into this state. We need churches thriving and planting more churches. And if we understand our missional responsibility like Paul and Barnabas did in Iconium, and that God has placed you here, then in leaving, and again, God moves his people, but leaving would be a very, very difficult choice. San Jose is worth fighting for. California is worth fighting for. Why? Souls hang in the balance. All right, can I give you one more point? Number one, we need to expect to fight. Number two, we need to remain in the fight. And number three, flee if necessary, but keep on fighting. Right, flee if necessary, but keep on fighting. Look at verse five. When a temple was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers, so the civil magistrates got involved too, to mistreat them, Paul and Barnabas, and to stone them, verse six, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, verse 7, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So similar to what happened in, in Antioch, some are being saved, opposition arises, they flee that place, they come down to Iconium, the same thing takes place. We're told here that they wanted to mistreat and stone them. You think, well, isn't stoning being mistreated? I think most people would say, yes, that is. So why is it here? There's always a reason. In the Greek, it literally means to ruin someone's reputation. And so I think the, the ASV renders it better. It says they attempted to treat them shamefully and stone them. So why would they do that? Well, they wanted them dead, so they're going to stone them. But they wanted to shame them in their death to dissuade those who had already come to a saving grace to reject the faith and turn away from Christ. So they want them humiliated and they want them dead. But before the plan can go through, Paul and Barnabas, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, they get wind of it. And they pack their bags, they cannot stay, and they head south to the region of Lysonia. First to the city of Lystra, which was about 20 miles south of Iconium. And then from there to the city of Derby, which was another 60 miles southeast of Lystra. And we're going to hear... We're going to hear more next week about what the Holy Spirit does in those two places. But as I close, um, I would like for us to learn two key lessons about Paul and Barnabas' decision to leave the city. First, number one, we see that they did not have to stay to the death. They didn't have to stay to the death, right? I mean, they tried to stay. They wanted to stay. There was more missionary work to be done. But when the situation became so threatening to their death and their future work, they used, God didn't say to them, leave. We don't get that. Maybe he did, but it's not in the scriptures. So they use wisdom. That's something we want to practice today. They use wisdom to make the decision to flee from. Well, it doesn't take much wisdom to come to that conclusion, Pastor. They're going to try to kill them, right? Now, now, there are times when you want to stay even to the point of death. But we know that the Lord had a lot of work for them to do outside of Iconium. They were just beginning the missionary work, right? And we also know that dead people don't do much missions work. And so they rightly concluded it'd be wise for us to leave and continue the work of spreading the gospel. Now, I would argue that most of us will not have these type of binary situations in making decisions. It, it requires wisdom, Lots of wisdom. So when you're trying to make a major life decision, like where do I live? Where do I raise my family? Where do I do the mission work of Jesus Christ? It will require you to exercise wisdom by doing what? By seeking God's face in the word. 
What saith the word of the Lord? By going to God in prayer, by listening closely to the leading of the Holy Spirit and the almost forgotten but not totally lost means of grace of what? Or better, who? The church. The church. God's word, prayer, the Holy Spirit, and the church. Your local body of believers given to you by God as a means of grace to help you make major life decisions like where do I do missions? What a blessing that we have each other for that. What a blessing that we don't have to wrestle around by ourselves in our rooms thinking, do I or do I not? We can come to a church just like this and say, saints, pray. Give me wisdom. Give me counsel. This is what I'm thinking. Kirk Cameron, the actor and evangelist, many of you know him from that show that I can't remember for the life of me now. And anywhere. Growing Pains, is that right? Is that right? That's pretty impressive. All right, Growing Pains. And the, but most of you know him from Left Behind series. He recently posted this. This was just recent, last few weeks. He wrote, I've been tossing around the idea of looking for, he lives in California, I've been tossing around the idea of looking for a new property and some land in another state. Listen, where taxes are lower, patriotism is higher, and biblical values of faith and family are celebrated. Now, none of these things he listed are necessarily wrong desires. We would actually say some of them are good desires, like biblical values, faith, family, right? Those are good things. But if he really wanted to know the wisdom of God for his life, where he was to live and do missions and ministry work, he wouldn't do it by tossing the idea around. He would do what? He would try to exercise the power of wisdom in the context of his local church. Those brothers and sisters, he covenanted together to make these types of decisions. In other words, he would go to his brothers and sisters and he'd seek their counsel. And he'd say, these are the things that I'm praying for. And the church, if they really loved him and they wanted what was best for his spiritual well-being, what was best for that local body of believers, and probably the thing we don't think about, what was best for the kingdom of God at large, the great purpose of Christ and his coming, they would have asked several questions, a healthy church, before blessing his departure. Questions like this, just listen. And these are questions that you would want, too, if you were thinking about leaving. Is your leaving in the best interest of the ministries of this church and the mission field God has currently placed you in? That's a good question. Will the kingdom of God be advanced, by your, be advanced more by your staying or by your going? Will the kingdom of God be advanced more by your staying or your going? What might God want to accomplish in you if you were to stay and forfeit all those temporal desires like land, lower taxes, and patriotism? How might he grow you? How might he grow you as a disciple by living in a less hospitable place? How might he use you to grow others who are living in a less hospitable place? How would moving away spiritually affect your church your family, your friends, and your neighbors. What impact will it have on them? This problem is probably the most stinging but pertinent today. Are you leaving to create a heaven on earth? Or do you trust in God's promise of heaven to enable you to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel now? That's a tough one. Now, these are, these are very hard questions. And I would, I would argue that most Christians would feel offended if they thought the church was asking them these questions. I have freedom in Christ. I can go wherever I want, whenever I want, however I want. Don't you tell me. Well, that's, that's not what we see in Scripture. We see the church being actively involved in the decisions, the major life decisions of its members for the well-being of the member and for the well-being of the church. 
These questions are the ones that you'd want asked and you'd want answered if you truly want to make a wise decision and not something that just appeals to your flesh. Paul and Barnabas left because they had to. As soon as they leave, they go to Lystra and Derby, unchurched, de-churched places, just like San Jose. And what do they do? Keep their mouths shut? Look at verse 7. And they continue to preach the gospel. They continue to fight the good fight of the faith. Why? That was their purpose. Why should you? That's your purpose. My beloved, our, our purpose is not patriotism, a plot of land, and lower taxes. It's not. Not that anything is necessarily bad. That's not your purpose as a Christian. Your purpose is to proclaim the gospel and make disciples for the glory of God. How long? Until you see Christ face to face. No more proclamation of the gospel when you see Jesus face to face. They understood their purpose and it shaped every major decision they made. And you're actually going to see that for the Apostle Paul all the way up until his imprisonment in Rome at the very end of the book. Every decision he made was based upon his purpose in life. That's a good way to go. All right, I want to close here, beloved. Do you know why you're still here? Do you know why you are still here? Better for you to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and then die. And he brings you home. Oh, I guarantee you that your heavenly dwelling place will be infinitely better than the best house on the best plot of land in the most red, red, red state amongst the most conservative community you could possibly imagine. Heaven will be infinitely better. So why are you here? Why would he keep you in this place? He keeps us here because there's still work for us to do. Right? That's the only reason you're here. There's glory to be given to God in the work you do as a child of God. There are people to love. There are disciples to be made. There is the gospel to be proclaimed. There are people to be saved right here in San Jose. Now, I would argue you can't do these things well if you're constantly daydreaming about getting out. If you spend a lot of your time meditating on, oh, if I could go there. Oh, if I could buy that piece of house. Oh, if I... That's not going to make you a very effective fighter. Nor does it do us any good, listen, I say this in love, for those of you who spend a lot of time online bashing California, bashing San Jose, that doesn't do any good for the gospel. We know these things, right? We know these things. So daydreaming doesn't do us any good. Complaining doesn't do us any good. Knowing that you are here, listen, you've been left here for the tax collectors, for the prostitutes. You've been left here for the most liberal, corrupt politician. You've been left here for the abortionist. You've been left here for them so they might come out of the darkness and into the light of Christ. You know, in the Gospel of Mark, when, when Jesus was calling Levi, Levi, the tax collector, to be one of his disciples, there's this marvelous encounter between Jesus and the conservative Jews, the Pharisees, who wanted to keep their religion nice and clean and tight. Listen to this. This is from Mark chapter 2, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus reclined, as Jesus reclined at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. These are all the wrong people for the conservatives. And the scribes of the Pharisees, these are the conservatives now in their group, they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, and they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? That was forbidden, right? Those are blue states. You don't go there and you do that with those people. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, what? You know this. 
Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous but the sinners. That's why we're here. We're left here in this place, especially in San Jose and here in California, to call sinners to Christ, those who hate Jesus and hate His church. Those who were just like you until someone shared the gospel with you and you believed. Just like you in all your rebellion. If Jesus had adopted the California standard for missions, He never would have come down from heaven. Imagine if the Lord said, I'll wait till the world implodes. Well, he'd still be waiting if he had never come because of our rebellion. Out of his love for you and out of his love for the lost here in this city, Jesus Christ gave up the comforts of heaven and put on flesh now and for eternity, becoming a man in order to do what? In order to enter our miserable state, literally and spiritually, He did that not only to reveal to us the Father perfectly, if you know the Son, then you know the Father, but to unite us with the Father, right? The great end of the gospel is not just the forgiveness of sin and receiving the righteousness of Christ. The great end is God and you being united with God through Christ in the Spirit for how long? Forever and ever and ever. Intimacy in the Trinity that you get in through the blood of Jesus. Christ came knowingly embracing the most severe persecution ever known to man, infinitely greater, not just being rejected and beaten and then crucified in a Roman cross. Those are horrible things. Those are horrible things. But he received in his flesh, as you know, the full punishment of the wrath of a holy God. He took the equivalency of your hell, which you deserve for your sin, becoming your substitute, so that you could be set free from sin and death. Instead of fleeing, Jesus stayed on that cross for those three hours from noon to three when it went dark. And during those three hours, he received, we, I, I can't even put it into words. We can't describe the eternal wrath of a holy God being poured out on the sinless Son of God that we deserved, but he stayed on the cross in order to pay in full the debt that we owe, and he did this so that sinners like us, living in a sinful place like us, could no longer be bound by sin. Listen, he saved sinners like us not to save us out of California, but to save us out of our sinful state. And he did that so that we're no longer bound by the power of sin, and we no longer face the judgment, but we have been set free in Christ, and therefore we can stay now in what? We can remain and proclaim just as Paul and Barnabas. We can stay in this place and testify to those who do not know Jesus so they might hear and they might repent and they might be set free. This is the extreme love of God for those in Christ. The Father giving the Son as our substitute and the Son willfully embracing His ministry, His cross, to secure a place for you, listen, not in Tennessee, not in Texas, not in Idaho, but in heaven. That's your end. You, God, the church, together forever. My beloved, if this is how God loved us when we were lost and living sinful, rebellious California lives, If this 
is how God has loved us and the spirit of Christ dwells in us, then ought we not have that same love for the lost that are here? Should we not? And if you don't, isn't there something wrong with your heart if you do not look upon the lost in San Jose and California and weep? Shouldn't we remain a long time in the most unchurched, de-churched place in the country? I think so. I think that it's right for us to stay and share the gospel with the tens of thousands who have never heard it. Never heard it. My beloved, if they silence us, then let them do so. If they kick us out, let them do so. But at least when we leave, we can say we're not leaving for lower taxes, cheaper gas, and more conservative politics. We'll say we left because we had to, but we will still fight. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the testimony of Paul and Barnabas working by the power of your Spirit in this most inhospitable place. We pray, Father, that you would encourage us as a church, even as a small church, to fight hard for the lost souls that are here in this mission field. I pray, Father, as we did this morning, that you would be pleased to bring thousands of healthy churches, plant them in this state, bring tens of thousands of Christians, missionaries from all over this country and the world to this place that we might see the 40 million souls here know the Lord. What an influence, Father, we could have as a state upon the nation and the world if you capture it by the love of your Son. I pray, Father, that you would give us a greater love for Jesus and the things of this world, that you would keep our purpose as sinners saved by grace and missions to the, missionaries to the lost, keep our purpose ever before us that we might make really wise decisions, doing your will always, seeking to please you most. I pray, Lord, that you would bless this church with this teaching, that you might bless this community with your Son. In Christ's name, amen.